It's kind of hard to believe, but Manuary on SSR is already coming to an end. Before I get into episode 81 of the podcast, I want to reiterate how grateful I am to all of the wonderful guests who have joined me this month and to all of the wonderful listeners who have tuned in. I know we have a lot of new listeners and I'm so glad to welcome you to the SSR family. It's appropriate then that the final guest of Manuary should be a member of my own real life family, my husband, Matt. I invited Matt to join me last Manuary and he was understandably a little nervous. So I was thrilled when he agreed to be a guest this time around. Matt and I have been together for nearly 11 years and married for almost four. We met all the way back in middle school, but didn't start dating until college, mostly because he was part of a much cooler clique than I was when we were teens. Life is so weird. These days, he, of course, lives here in Brooklyn with me and Irv, and he works in finance, doing something very mathy that I would not be able to explain to you. He is absolutely one of the smartest, wisest people I know, and I learn so much from him every day. Matt likes to stay as far away from the whole social media thing as possible, but he does make the occasional appearance on my SSR feed. As a reminder, I am at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. So what book did Matt choose to talk about on this very special episode? He opted for Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a novel I maintain we were required to read in high school, though as you'll soon hear, Matt disagrees. Huck Finn was published in the United States in 1885 as a follow-up to The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and was basically controversial from the get-go. Libraries and organizations banned it early on because of its language and perceived lack of morality, and those conversations continue to this day. In more recent years, much of the controversy around The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is related to race. Twain uses the N-word quite liberally in the book, and there are many camps who feel that Jim, the slave who Huck Finn journeys down the Mississippi with, is depicted disrespectfully, and that the way Huck treats him throughout the book is solely about what's most convenient for him. Others see the book as a clear condemnation of race relations in the Deep South in the 19th century. A quick Google search will show you just how complicated the conversation about Huck Finn really is. You'll, of course, get a taste of it in this episode. In case you've never read Huck Finn, maybe you were like Matt and skipped out on the required reading in high school, here's a quick refresher on the plot. Huck Finn, BFF to Tom Sawyer and a poor kid from what you might call the wrong side of the tracks, wants to run away from his adopted home. He's not loving the new expectations that have been put on him there, to be clean, to go to church, to act respectably, etc., etc. Tom discourages him, but he ends up being kidnapped by his father anyway. Pap is the town drunk and is highly abusive of his son, so it's not long before Huck runs away from him, faking his own death in the process. While escaping, Huck runs into Jim, a slave who belongs to Miss Watson, one of the women who adopted him. Jim is running away to avoid the possibility of being sold to another, more brutal plantation even further away from his family. In the first big moral conundrum of the book, Huck wonders whether or not he should turn Jim in. He decides not to, and the two continue down the Mississippi River, getting into a series of adventures and misadventures along the way. The end of the book is especially controversial, but you'll have to wait until the last few minutes of the episode to hear all of those details. In addition to the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you'll hear Matt and I discuss audiobooks, our personal reading styles, our dog Irv, and a little SSR behind the scenes on this episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, please don't hesitate to share a five-star rating or review on iTunes. It means so much to me to get that feedback, and it also goes a long way toward helping spread the word about the show to new listeners. You can also support SSR by shopping for shirts, tote bags, bookmarks, and stickers at www.ssrpodcast.com shop, or by coming on board as a Patreon sponsor at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast. You can also find more details about Patreon by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Shout out to all of the Patreon sponsors tuning into this episode. You're the best. 
And speaking of best, Libra FM is the best way to listen to all of the books on your TBR. I even have a discount code for you. Libra FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. As always, SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libra.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted to take advantage of that discount. Time for you to meet Matt. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Matt. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, so, listeners, this is sort of an interesting episode in a lot of ways. I'm having trouble looking Matt in the eye right now. Uh, this is actually the first time I've ever recorded face-to-face, in-person, rather than on Skype. Reason being that Matt is my husband. And so we live in the same place. Um, and here we are recording at our kitchen counter. So if you're picking up on any, like, funky audio or different sounds that you're not used to hearing. It might be clearer than usual. It's because we're recording differently today because Matt is my special guest here to wrap up Manuary. How are you feeling about being on SSR a year and a half in, Matt? Honored, excited, (laughs) a little nervous, but uh, very excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm so excited to have you on Manuary. You've been a guest that has been requested multiple times. <laughs> I wanted to have you on for Manuary last year. Um, and, you know, you were rightfully a little nervous. I think I'm actually more nervous than you are today. I don't know why, because I sort of have such like a specific process that I'm used to doing for the podcast. As you know, I'm somewhat of a regimented human being. You're the pro. Um, and so I don't know. I sort of feel like I want you to think that I'm good at this. I want you to think that I like know my stuff. You're amazing at this. Well, that's very nice of you. But um, I don't know. It's it's like weird doing my spiel for you and getting all my equipment set up. And I feel like I'm talking a lot. But it's well, just because I want to have a good episode with you. I see so much of the behind the scenes. So I see you getting ready for all of these interviews. I see you reading the books. I see you highlighting every single page. And many people probably don't know. But when Ali finishes a book, there's probably stickers coming out of it every other page. Right now, she's sitting in front of me with her iPad with about 10 pages of highlighted and color-coded notes. So the preparation that goes into these episodes is amazing. So I am understandably intimidated coming into this, just knowing how much work that she puts into it for every one of these episodes. And I just read the book. Didn't do much work. (laughs) 
Well, that's not true. Well, I, first of all, I appreciate you saying all of that. Listeners, I did not bring him on to reveal that behind the scenes info to you, but that is a sneak peek. And I have to say that Matt is like the king of research. Um, he researches everything from like the kind of socks he orders to where we're going to go on vacation. <laughs> so he may have done even more research for this episode than I did. So I feel like this is going to be a really good conversation. I would like to say, first of all, that I was surprised by Matt's choice of book. I have been holding on to the mouse and the motorcycle for him (laughs) since day one of the podcast because he has been telling me since we started dating almost 11 years ago, everyone, that the mouse and the motorcycle was his favorite book growing up. Um, And I have not offered that to any other guests in a year and a half, thinking that I should hold on to it on the off chance that Matt Kosick decided to grace us with his presence on the podcast. And when he finally agreed to do Manuary 2020, I was like, great, we'll do mouse and the motorcycle. And he was like, mm, I don't think so. I'm going to pass. Tell me about that. Well, I didn't really actually like Mouse and the Motorcycle. Okay. I just mm-hmm. wasn't a huge reader growing up. And I think I did, or I used Mouse and the Motorcycle for about five different book reports over the course of two or three years. So it's not that I enjoyed that book in particular. It was just very easy for me to uh, basically repeat the same book report on it. Well, I never did anything like that. I'm sure that that shocks everyone. (laughs) So we're not doing Mouse and the Motorcycle. Maybe you just used that as like a way to flirt with me, that that was like the only book you could think of at the time. Yeah, maybe. And you're like, I read when I was a kid. I read Mouse and the Motorcycle. Guess it worked. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Here we are. Um, But we're actually talking about The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, published in the U.S. in 1885. I'm really curious, Matt, and I sort of know the answer to this question. Listeners, as a heads up, we really tried actually not to talk much about the book before we recorded because we wanted to have like a pretty authentic conversation on mic. Um, And so I, I know sort of the answer to this question, but beyond that, we really haven't talked at all about our reading experience. So um, Matt, why don't you get us started by sharing a little bit about why you picked this book. You researched it before you finally chose it. I gave you free reign really to pick whatever you wanted. So I didn't tell you this yet, but originally I wanted to do the Swiss Family Robinson, Uh. which was my favorite movie growing up. I have two brothers and I basically pictured myself in that movie a million times. I know growing up that I read the great illustrated classic of it, Mm -hmm. but researching the book before I chose it, I found out that there was no pirates in the original book, (laughs) (laughs) and that basically ruined the book for me. So I'll never read that book now. I'll stick to the movie, and I'm proud of it. So kind of along the same lines, I was a big fan of the, uh, I think it was the Disney movie, yeah. Huck and Finn. Tom the, and Huck. Tom and Huck, sorry. It's all right. It's okay. But uh, I was a big fan of that, and I don't know, I just remember really enjoying it and liking the big adventure behind it, and I had never read any of Mark Twain's stuff before. I know that he was this big, famous American author. And I figured I probably wouldn't go back and read this book at any other point in my life, so I might as well do it now for the show. But as you revealed to me, maybe there was a little bit of confusion. <sighs> yeah. So Not, I don't want to blow up your spot or anything, but like, let's tell the whole story. Well, so I wanted to, I think, originally read the book that matched up with the movie. Right. And I had always thought that that was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And about one page into this book, you very quickly learn that it is the sequel to (laughs) The Adventures of 
Tom Sawyer, which is the book that I kind of wanted to read. But after like the first few chapters, I just basically decided to keep going with it. Well, also, let's be real. You didn't want to admit to me that you were wrong in your choice. I don't think wrong is the right word. <laughs> I don't think you'd be wrong in this situation, but uh, I guess... Sort of like very similar books, so I was happy with the choice. Good. I'm glad you're happy with the choice. I, too, remember seeing the Tom and Huck movie when I was a kid. For reference, it came out in 1995. I remember going to see it with my dad, um, and he was very excited to take me to see it. And I remember thinking that it was kind of like a boy movie. You know, we talk about that kind of gendered pop culture stuff a lot on the show. I ended up really enjoying it. Jonathan Taylor Thomas, he was such a babe back in the day. And I really liked the movie. I think that I read this book, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, in high school. Maybe The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So a little other background info for listeners who don't know is that Matt and I actually went to the same high school. Um, We've known each other for a very long time, although we did not date in high school. We are not technically high school sweethearts. I think I read some of this book in high school. Maybe it's a pretty long book, so I'm not sure that we read the whole thing. But there are parts that I remember, like The Duke and the King really jogged my memory. You know, some of the language stuff really jogged my memory. Maybe we read excerpts. Like, do you remember those huge English textbooks? Matt's looking panicked now because he did not read everything he was supposed to in high school. But don't you remember those huge English textbooks that we had with, like, excerpts of everything and we had to lug them around? I definitely don't. (laughs) You don't remember carrying those books around? Well, first of all, we weren't in the same... English class. I was. We were for two years, I think, until you decided to slack off. Well, Allie was always in the AP classes and basically every sort of advanced class you could be in in the English department, while I spent most of my time in the math and sciences department. (laughs) So when it came to English classes, I remember actually dropping one of the honors classes. I think maybe my sophomore or junior year, specifically because I didn't want to do all the additional reading. So you probably read that huge textbook in that class. I think I think everybody had these textbooks, but I'll take your word for it. Um, in any case, I think I'd read part of this book in high school. Um, I remember not being terribly fond of it. You know, in high school, obviously, there's an expectation to read a lot of the classics, um, and I enjoyed a lot of them, and I did not enjoy many others of them. I'm not sure that this is one of my favorites. So I was excited to kind of see how I absorbed it all as an adult, knowing what I do now about the fact that there's obviously some significant themes in this book um, and the way that it's contributed to sort of our larger narrative around race in the South and that sort of thing. So, you know, I was I was really excited to see like how I was able to download some of that as an adult in a way that maybe I couldn't as a kid. That being said, I think that this book is a lot to take and I almost miss sort of the assistance of an English teacher on this one like guiding me through it and we've talked a lot about how I don't think we had great English teachers at our at our high school but I think that those teachers did a pretty good job of like walking me through this because I needed a lot of uh, a lot of background research for this one, partially because, and this is also something that I think is worth talking about, Matt and I made a conscious decision to do something a little bit different with the way we read this book. We actually listened to this book on audio. Together, we were doing a ton of traveling around the holidays, as one does, um, and so we thought that it would be kind of like an interesting experiment for me to listen to The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. As you know, if you've been listening for a long time, doing 
doing the podcast requires a lot of reading on my part, which I love, but um, it's tough. And so I've actually gotten suggestions from a lot of listeners over the years who say like, well, maybe you should just listen to them on audio. And I've thought about it, especially since I've been partnering with the awesome team over at Libro FM um, and wondering if maybe that's a better way for me to check some of these books off my list because Matt and I obviously were in this reading endeavor together. We thought maybe it could be interesting to listen simultaneously and it just kind of worked out that way. So we listened to The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn on audio. I think it was about eight hours long. Yeah, well, we also did it a little bit faster. So yeah. So I think it took about eight or nine in total. Yeah, and we were doing a lot of driving. What did you think about the audiobook experience of this particular book? So it was my first ever audiobook. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I will say I've tr- attempted to listen to audiobooks in the past, and I could never really get through them. I think that the audiobook format worked for this book specifically because it is really... There are definitely deeper themes, but it's just so action-packed that it is kind of just like listening to a big, exciting adventure story that doesn't end. So I think that in this, for this specific book, it worked out okay. Especially also, it was first person, so it worked out well with him basically telling the whole story, and there wasn't a whole lot of jumping back and forth between different characters. Yeah, I hear all of that. I think, you know, one of the sort of key traits of this book, as Matt mentioned, is that it's written in the first person from Huckleberry Finn's perspective. One of the, like, again, like major hallmarks of it is that it's written in this regional American dialect. It's one of the first books to have been written that way, um, which is why it's been called out by a lot of literary scholars. Um, It was the first time, really, that an author wasn't trying to recreate the work of, like, a British author, for example. So I thought that it was really interesting to hear it in that voice. Um, Whoever is the voice actor for the the audiobook that we listened to was really great and I, I think like voice actors and audiobooks in general are really amazing um, the way that he jumped back and forth between the different characters in this really thick accent I enjoyed that element of listening to this audiobook and I, I listen to audiobooks fairly regularly but I have to say that I learned something interesting about myself in the process of this which is that my reading comprehension for audiobooks is not as great um, as I would like it to be so I actually found that I was getting lost in a lot of the details. And I think that's kind of like speaks to the kinds of like readers or watchers of pop culture that you and I are. You mm-hmm. tend to get more into like the action of things and you can follow the action more where yeah. I think I'm like a little bit more of a big picture thinker. And so I admittedly was struggling to like kind of keep up what was going with what was going on in the audiobook, where I guess you were like really keyed into the action piece of it. I struggled. And so I, I if it sounds as we're going through this episode, like I had to do some like extra spark notes research and like read a bunch of summaries of this book, it's because I did. I don't know that I necessarily followed along with the details of the plot as much as I do when I read something on paper. So listeners who have suggested that I do all of my reading on audio, I'm not sure that I'm gonna be able to do that and sort of deliver the same level of like analysis. So um, I'm glad that we did it because it was sort of like a fun way to pass those many hours that we spent in the car on the holidays. But um, it definitely changed the way that I was able to engage with the story. So there's a little bit more background. Enough of our like sort of chatter, Matt. Let's start talking about the book. What were your first impressions? I think especially as, as I mentioned briefly, like the dialect and the voice of this book is so distinct. What did you think about that? Well, I definitely was not expecting it, and I think going back to the audiobook thing real quick, I actually tried to read the first 
two or three chapters by myself before we sort of had agreed to listen to it together on audiobook. And I actually had a very tough time getting into it because of the dialect. And I think that's just the type of reader that I am. It's difficult for me to sort of comprehend the larger story without putting in significant effort from my side. And I was trying to sort of read this quick and thought it'd be a quick, fun read. Uh, it was a little <laughs> more challenging. So I was very happy that we listened to it on audiobook because I, I feel like the different dialect, hearing it through the, the voice actor, it was more of like a story and you didn't really have to really comprehend every single word. So, I mean jumping right into the the book that way I, I didn't think it was a huge barrier once we started listening to it on tape so I mean in right from the first few chapters I would say that it was basically what I had expected I mean there was a lot of mischief and action right from the first couple of pages and it, I would say it probably like met my expectations of what the general tone of the book was going to be. Well, it's interesting because obviously we pick up kind of right where The Adventures of Tom Sawyer leaves off. And from all of the reading and all the research that I've done about these books sort of individually and then as a pair, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer has a much different tone than The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That book is really about sort of like the boyish adventures and the mischief. You know, I have not read that book recently, so I can't speak to that personally, but that's that's sort of what I'm finding in the research that I've done. And from what I discovered about Mark Twain's process of writing The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, um, he had meant for it to be again, like a direct sequel, which it ended up being. Um, but he actually like started it with a bunch of chapters that had been discarded from the adventures of Tom Sawyer. So I think, I don't know if you felt this way, like I sort of feel like the book almost feels like two different books because the first few chapters are this almost like playful tone. Yeah. Whereas you're saying there's all this mischief and all this fun and you and I were kind of laughing because you tell me all the time these stories of growing up in a neighborhood with all of these boys. And when we meet Tom and Huck in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, that's sort of the vibe I was getting. It's yeah. like Tom's story has this band of robbers um they're kind of like running wild i loved all these details about them kind of creating this like code of rules about how the (laughs) band of robbers was going to conduct themselves and the way that they were arguing with each other about like what was proper and what wasn't i loved all of that stuff but that's really only the tone for the first few chapters and so when i found out that Mark Twain had used some chapters from the first book to kick off the second book. That made a lot more sense to uh, me. That makes total sense now. I felt the the same way. It definitely, uh, there's a little bit in the beginning, a huge chunk in the middle, and then a little bit at the end that definitely feel like three different tones com- completely. But I, I really liked the beginning, as you said. I think that's a big part of what kind of kept me listening or reading this book and paying close attention to it and enjoying it was the fact that it was this sort of big group of boys who were just playing outside. I mean, I think that Huck Finn is like 12 or, or 13, they said in the yeah, book. Yeah, he doesn't really know. Yeah. He's like, I'm about thir- I'm about to turn 13, maybe 14. Like, it's kind of unclear how old he is. Yeah, so I mean, I definitely remember that age and growing up, I had a lot of similar experiences with a huge group of my friends, my brother's friends, all playing outside and kind of doing similar things and getting into similar mischief. At least it felt that way for the first 
compared to the first little bit of the book. Well, and the interesting thing that kind of sets Tom and Huck apart from other boys, boys like you who may have been reading this, um, is that as we discover, um, one of the things that's happened to them over the course of the adventures of Tom Sawyer is that they've come into all this money. They're rich, which is like very cool for a kid. And Huck is an interesting character in that he comes from what you might call like the quote unquote wrong side of the tracks. He was raised, raised feels like a strong word actually, um, but he grew up with his dad who um, is known as like the town drunk, can't get his life together. I haven't read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer in a long time, but from what I was able to gather from the research that I did for our conversation, um, Huck is kind of known in that book as like the kid who is like sleeping in random doorways and sleeping in um, empty barrels that are around town. So he's sort of like drifting around. um, And then when he and Tom become best friends, he's swept into this whole other kind of hierarchy of children. Um, And so the fact that he's come into all this money is like, even cooler than if another kid had because he is is not starting off from a place of privilege. And when we meet him, he has been taken in by Widow Douglas, um, who he was able to like save in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So um, she's kind of seen the fact that he doesn't have the care um, that he might deserve from his father, and she's decided to take him in. And she, along with her sister, Miss Watson, is trying to quote-unquote civilize him. Um, they're really into like teaching him about religion. Um, they want him to get a good education. And I would say one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Huck was that he sort of was like using his education as a rebellion. And this comes in more like when his dad is sort of back in the mix more. But when his dad comes in in particular, his dad doesn't want him to be educated. He sort of like pushes back on this idea that Huck should be going to school. And Huck like really wants to go to school. I think he wants to learn. And as much as he resents Widow Douglas and Miss Watson for imposing their beliefs on him, I think that he he sort of picks up on the inherent value in learning and like putting himself in a position to rise above the place where he's coming from. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that, I mean, in in that situation, he definitely is doing that to rebel a bit. But I think throughout the book, there's a lot of situations where Huck kind of ends up doing the right thing, but like not fully for the right reasons. So he's not desperate to get this education because he wants to better himself. It's for a lot of other maybe not so great reasons. I think uh, he sort of does that a lot throughout the book. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think we get into that more and we we will get into that more as we talk about um, some of his inner conflicts about race in particular and his relationship with Jim. But also the thing with um, Tom Sawyer too, Tom Sawyer, we only see him in the beginning of the book for a, a little bit. And he sort of has this very, he comes off very well educated Maybe not like reading, writing, but uh, in terms of he knows all of these stories and he is very, very adventurous and has read all of these very interesting stories. And when they're putting together their band of robbers and things, he's saying that they have to do things certain ways because this is how it is in all the stories. So I think Huck might also have this sort of desire to be as educated as as Tom is. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but we were laughing about that a lot when we were listening to that part of the book because there's sort of this repeating refrain that Tom Sawyer keeps saying, like, well, that's how it is in the book, so that's how we have to do it. And I love that about Tom. Tom made me laugh in that part a lot. I think that that also is such a, like, growing up boy thing. Like, you see all these things. Like, you want to have these similar adventures. There's no other way to have them than what you see and you're really trying to just reenact those. So I definitely remembered a lot of that of growing up and understood and really enjoy that sort of back and forth with them. 
he was modeling himself after his heroes in the same way that you were modeling yourself yeah. after the Swiss Family Robinson. Oh, yeah, it could be. Matt made me watch the Swiss Family Robinson probably, what, like a year or two after we started dating? Yeah, it's a requirement. I, I didn't get it. <laughs> I just didn't get it. Maybe we'll try again now that we have yeah. Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Did you find that Huck Finn seemed like a character that kids might relate to? I mean, I think it's so hard because this is, you know, this is one of the oldest books that we've covered on the podcast. Again, written in, well, published in 1885. It was written in the late 1870s, early 1880s. And I think it's it's hard to sort of wrap your head around like how kids of that time might have related to a character like Huck Finn, let alone kids throughout all of these other decades that have passed since. Do you think that he feels timeless as like a kid character? I think that's one of the hardest things about this book. I'm sure we'll talk about it a lot more, but I don't think that kids today can easily relate to Huckberry's character throughout this book. I think that he probably was a very normal character for the time period that this was written about and the time period it was written in, but I think for kids today reading this book, they might have a whole lot of questions about the the book in general and really wouldn't be able to relate to any of the, the children in the book. Yeah. Well, and I think now is as good a time as any to talk about the many challenges that this book has faced. In the 1990s, it was, I believe, number five on the ALA's list of most challenged books in the United States. Really, from the day it was published, it was getting pushed back from schools and libraries. Um, I found a lot about one particular controversy with the book. Right after the book came out, the Concord, Massachusetts Public Library um, rejected it, said it could not um, sort of be shelved there. Um, and then in 1905, the Brooklyn Public Library was another one that felt very passionately about the book not being available there. Um, and I, I pulled out one quote that I found from the letter that Mark Twain wrote to the Brooklyn Public Library in 1905. He said, I am greatly troubled by what you say. I wrote Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn for adults exclusively, and it always distresses me when I find that boys and girls have been allowed to access them. Which is so interesting to me because, you know, I, I think some of these like older books, it's, it's tough because YA and middle grade per se didn't exist as categories yeah. until fairly recently when you think about like literary history as a whole um, and certainly in the late 19th century like authors could not even conceive of the way that books would be categorized now um, and so it's not as if Mark Twain in 1875 like set out to write a YA book but because he wrote about kids I think that both The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn have sort of morphed into these works that are targeted toward children as I said, like I'm pretty sure that we were assigned these books in schools. Yeah. Kids in other places are assigned these books in schools. Um, I don't necessarily think that adults of 2019 are like casually picking up these books to read as like grown-up reading. So I do think that they found their way into like more of a kid category. And it is interesting to see that like it doesn't seem as though Mark Twain had any like specific thought in mind that these would be like kids' books. Yeah, I think also from what I read about. Mark Twain, and I'm by no means any sort of expert. You're, you're <laughs> Matt no, no Cossack, Mark, Mark Twain, Twain scholar. <laughs> I mean, it seems like he wrote a lot of comedy and satire, and yeah. that was sort of his just style in general. So I think the idea of him sitting down and writing this specific book and then having it being sort of taught to kids that are of a similar age, of 13, 14, he definitely would probably have a lot of uh, negative feelings around it. I, I know you talk about it on the podcast a lot, too, about sort of when you're a kid, you always want to, like, read up in age. So there's probably a lot of, like, 
10, 11 year olds out there reading this book. And I think it would be very difficult for them to adequately comprehend a lot of the difficult themes in it with out sort of significant help from teachers or parents or whoever. Yeah. Before we move away from the topic of this book coming under fire from schools and libraries, I did find some interesting anecdotes that I just wanted to share just because I, I'm sort of surprised by them and I'm not sure how I feel about them. Um, so one of the major complaints that a lot of institutions have with this book is the use of the N-word. Um, we won't be saying that word on this podcast, but it is used, I would say, liberally in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I believe that in the version that I read in high school. It was not censored in any way. It wasn't like bleeped out. Doesn't that kind of surprise you about where? I don't know if it surprises me about where we're from, actually. I mean, we did grow up in a predominantly <laughs> white. Yeah. Pretty conservative suburb. Pretty conservative suburb. And it does not surprise me that it was unabridged. <laughs> but uh, Unapologetic. Unapologetic. <laughs> but also, I, I, th- I think that, I mean, I know that we didn't grow up in the, the best area to teach this effectively. And it was probably a lot of the racial themes were uh, ignored in general. Like I said, I didn't get taught this book, but you might have. And I think that it probably is a huge challenge in 2019, 2020 for teachers to teach this book to middle schoolers or high schoolers. Yeah, and hopefully more diverse communities too. Yes. But apparently there's this trend in 2011 where a bunch of publishers created these sort of like alternate versions. Um, One version just removed every instance of the N-word. And so again, this is like a new edition of the book. I think at this point, this book is in the public domain. So there's like tons of different editions of it. Um, And the publisher said, the publisher is called New South. They said, at New South, we saw the value in an that would help the works find new readers if the publication sparks good debate about how language impacts learning or about the nature of censorship or the way in which racial slurs exercise their baneful influence then our mission in publishing this new edition of Twain's works will be more emphatically fulfilled Um, and a scholar actually sort of took issue with this approach um, and said that all of these changes and new editions actually sort of rob children of this opportunity to really think about like why the use of that language is a problem And, and I think that's fair because I do imagine that in a lot of classes classrooms where this book is being taught, kids are at least having an opportunity to understand like why that word became so weaponized at this time and and sort of like maybe why Twain thought it was appropriate to use in the book and why we in 2019, 2020 find that it's not appropriate to use that word anymore. I think it's it's certainly an interesting conversational starter. That being said, the word is extremely triggering for so many people. And I would imagine that in certain communities, um, it would be especially upsetting for kids. So you know, I, I guess I see the argument on both sides. Um, I'm not a teacher. I don't sort of understand like the theory around which of those discussions is more or less worthwhile. Um, but I thought that was interesting to point out. And then something else that I found, which is kind of weird, um, is that again in 2011, one publisher published an edition called The Hipster Huckleberry Finn. Um, and in the place of the N-word, they used the word hipster. No. Yeah, like hipster. hipster. So anytime the N-word appeared in the version we read, it would have said hipster. Um, And there's another edition that was published called The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn Robotic Edition, where in every instance of the N-word, the word robot was substituted. Interesting. Yes. I don't think I would have liked either of those nearly as much. But it's definitely hard. I can see. It's confusing, I think. It's definitely confusing. I would say it's also sort of distracting because it's without much guidance, it's hard to look at the book as a larger piece of work or piece of art 
and with such a terrible and triggering word happening so often, it, it is a very difficult thing to try to wrap your head around. And it's, uh, I would assume, very hard to just, without knowing that that was how the book was written, which I didn't know going into it, it's really like the first thing that you n notice. And it's probably one of the things I'll remember most about the book, unfortunately. And obviously, understandably, there's a, a big debate on either side of what we should do and how we should be presenting this book going forward, especially because it is a very important piece of history, whether it's good or bad. Yeah, it's just another one of those books that's very difficult to really get through. Yeah. Well, we're going to, let's just, we're going to dig into the race conversation sure. now. Let's try. <laughs> um, well, and I will say, listeners, that when Matt decided that he was going to tackle the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and he's taking a deep breath now and preparing himself, I said, okay, great. Sounds good. Whatever you want to do. Are you ready to talk about race in the Deep South? Because that's going to be part of this episode. And he very bravely said yes. And to his credit, Matt has listened to, I think, every episode of the podcast. So he knows that this is sort of like how it goes. And you mm -hmm. you can't talk about this book without addressing oh, race. Definitely not. Definitely not. And all it takes is like a quick Google search of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and you'll understand why. For those of you who haven't read the book or aren't familiar, it's just like one of the major themes of the book. I will say to kind of kick off this conversation that it's always tricky on the podcast to talk about issues of race because, of course, I want to be as sensitive to my own blind spots as I can be. I want to be educated about different perspectives. I, of course, want to be able to represent my sort of fundamental viewpoint, which is one of inclusivity um, and sort of embracing all people, all cultures, all backgrounds, all races. Um, but I don't necessarily want to do that without, again, recognizing my own blind spots. So that's always sort of like the fundamental challenge of talking about race on the podcast. And listeners, I as always, I want you to know how important that is to me and I don't take that for granted and a book like this is even more complicated because again it's so old and so again we have to remember that this was an author who was born and raised in the south himself he wrote this book in the 1870s he's coming at it from a particular perspective and he grew up with one worldview he grew into another worldview I found out in my research that he growing up had sort of accepted slavery as okay and um, that's what he'd been raised with and he actually ended up marrying into an abolitionist family his father-in-law was a conductor on the Underground Railroad um, and actually helped free Frederick Douglass which I thought was an interesting historical factoid um, so this is a man who has evolved in his own views of race and of slavery, thankfully. And we have to be mindful of the time period, which again is so removed from the time period that we're living in now. We have to be mindful of the author as sort of an individual and what the author's beliefs are, what the author's environment is, maybe what their motive is. And then there's also the character who might represent those same viewpoints, might represent a particular motive on the part of the author, but is also like a creation of the author. So when I was kind of trying to wrap my head around my thoughts on the way that race is represented in this book, I was trying to be mindful of, okay, let's remember that this book was written in a particular time period and it's been probably received very differently in the many years since it's been published you know I, I was trying to think about Mark Twain as this as Matt mentioned um, like a humorist which I guess I had never like realized that that was yeah. how he was 
thought of um, because I think of him as this like very serious literary author. Yeah. So you have to think about the fact that he is coming at this in sort of a satirical approach, yeah. um, which is something that I saw come up again and again in my research. Like this is meant to be a satire of um, certain social structures in the South at this point in history. And then I also am trying to think about Huck, who is this boy who's been raised with a particular set of values. And then of course of Jim, who is Miss Watson's slave, who Huck gets to know so much better over the course of the book. So that was a rant, but I just, I like to set that up because it's been a while, I think, since we really dove into race to this extent. We probably have never explored it to this extent, actually. Um, And so I just, I sort of wanted to like pull back the curtain a little bit on how I was trying to think about it. Did you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, well, that was very well said. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you. Um, (laughs) I feel a lot of the same feelings that you do about it, but I couldn't express them nearly as well as as you just did. I think one of the important things, too, is to sort of delineate between the author, the character, and the time it was published. And I think a big part of it is... Um, me trying to, when I was reading or listening to this book, I was trying to not be as judgmental as I, I wanted to be. Obviously, there's a, a huge portion of the, the book that's very problematic. I mean, almost every sentence you can you can pick something out. But I tried to sort of take a step back a little bit and view it from this sort of satirical standpoint and think about it as not the author not trying to show um, what is right or wrong and just trying to show this adventures or misadventures of somebody throughout that time period and it's sort of up to all the individual readers to take away what they're going to take away I mean I'll take away something different than you or uh, anyone Earth. else or our sleeping little puppy yeah but I think it's all sort of on the reader and it's difficult to I, I don't really like when people try to explain to other people how they should be taking in a book or reading a book or what they should think about it and I think it's sort of a, a up to each of the people to interpret it the way they want to. But I think it's important to have those conversations around it is probably the most important thing with a book like this. I think it's it's actually very challenging for somebody to just read it on their own without talking to anyone else about it. I think that that's in, in sharing people's thoughts and feelings about it is sort of where you get to whether it's sort of right or wrong for whatever reason. Well, that was also very well said. Very well said. As we record this, we're a couple of days past the release of the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory episode, and I've gotten a lot of feedback about that episode. Um, if you haven't listened yet, I point out a ton of issues about that book, and it's a really good episode, so go check it out if you haven't. But I've been getting a lot of feedback from people who love the book and were, were kind of upset about some of the observations that my guest Hunter and I had. Um, and so it sort of like led me to a bunch of conversations with these individual listeners about the fact that like in thinking through the problems in some of these quote-unquote classic books you have to be able to look at the work as kind of like a literary yeah. artifact and and sort of like what is there to appreciate in this as a work that was written in x year that impacted people in that time that maybe opened people's eyes in a certain way that had not happened before at that time and then sort of divorced from that to be able to say okay like let's 
respect some of those elements, but also let's figure out what about it does not jive with where we are in 2020. And I think that it's obviously an ongoing challenge for me with this podcast to make sure that we're not buying too much into cancel culture, as they call it, and, and you know, like not canceling everything because if we really were to like cancel anything that upset us, everything would be canceled. Um, and as you know, Matt, a lot of things upset me, but just trying to figure out like what parts of a book really are still up for appreciation and what's yeah. up for discussion. I think that's a challenge. And in a book like this, that's very true. And I really liked what you said about the fact that like Mark Twain isn't trying to say like the way Huck Finn thinks about race or the way he treats people is the right way to treat people or to think about race or to do anything really, but just to sort of like show this snapshot of what it might've been like to be a 12 or 13 or 14 year old kid in the antebellum South. Um, and to sort of let readers make their own judgments. And I think the fact that Mark Twain thought of himself as this humorist who wrote satire is also a really important piece of context because it reminded me of the fact that like we're not supposed to necessarily read this book word for word in a weird way. Like yeah. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but like there's there's stuff under the surface here and in like there's implications that Twain is trying to make. He's trying to uncover some hypocrisy. He's trying to sort of show like the humor, like the dark humor and the way that people behave. You sort of have to read it at that level. It can't just be like Mark Twain is telling a story and we should just follow every word and that's the narrative. Like his message is really like below the surface, I think, as a humorist or as a satirist. Like he's looking to go deeper than maybe we're able to read on the first pass. Yeah. And honestly, he's probably happiest or would be happiest with this book being debated over for a hundred years after he published it and people being confused on both sides of the debate. I, I think that honestly might have been one of his his goals in writing this, this book that is a little bit uh, morally confusing. So after we meet Huck and his friends, Huck is sick of being held down by these ladies that are trying to raise him and he escapes. He ends up being kidnapped by his dad and that's a little crazy, but um, to sort of speed ahead a bit, he runs into Jim, who, as you mentioned, is Miss Watson's slave, who Huck knows from living in their house. And Jim is described as this really big guy. Um, and that's kind of like the, the prevailing description of him early in the book. They sort of run away together. And I think when you and I were listening to the audiobook, we both were like having a lot of reactions to a particular passage where Huck is really struggling with like what his role is in running into Jim and knowing that Jim is running away. And for context, Jim is running away because he's heard Miss um, Watson talking with some of the other white people around about the fact that she wants to sell him to another family. Um, I believe like downriver is how it's described, which will mean that he's further away from his family. His wife and his children are all slaves at different farms and different plantations. Um, so if he's sold, he's going to be even further away from them, not to mention the fact that the rumor is that these people are even more brutal to their slaves. So for obvious reasons, Jim wants to run away. His goal is to get to Illinois, which is a free territory at this point. Um, he wants to then be able to get a job so that he can buy back the freedom of his wife and children um, and reunite his family. So kind of like something that I hadn't thought about until I dug into some of the criticism. And again, like this is probably something that my English teacher back in high school pointed out to me a little bit more directly is the fact that like Huck is also escaping. Like Huck is taking off from the people that are taking care of him. Um, not so well, because his dad is such a loser and, and a horrible man. But they're both on the run. And 
I think as readers, we have to be able to step back and observe the fact that like there's hypocrisy in the way that these two are treated so differently in, in the places that they go. So the white people in particular, obviously like have no shame about like setting the dogs off on Jim and like having these manhunts out for him because people know that he's escaped. And then they see Huck and they're like, oh no, like, are you okay? Um, do you need any food? Can we get you something? That's sort of like a digression, but you and I are both reacting a lot to Huck's sort of like mental gymnastics around whether or not he's supposed to turn Jim in. My biggest problem with that is, and I think my biggest problem with Huck throughout the book, is that I know it's supposed to be sort of a moral journey for Huck, whether, I mean, he initially was thinking he should turn Jim in, and then in the end eventually wants to really save him and does everything he can to save him. But my my biggest problem, I would say, is that, like, the, the way that it was presented, Huck's biggest problem or biggest thing to overcome throughout the book was that he was worried that if he didn't turn Jim in, he would get arrested. And it wasn't on the flip side of it of, okay, I want to save Jim because it's the right thing to do and I care about him. It was really him getting over the hump of, can I really not turn him in? And it was really sort of self-serving, and it was the right, definitely the wrong battle for Huck to sort of fight in his his mind. I, I think, and it was a, a pretty poor example. I mean, it's probably what the author wanted to do with it, but I think that was my biggest hurdle in actually liking Huck as a as a character throughout the story. And I think Mark Twain was really smart too in the way he sort of set up these dynamics with the characters because it would have been really easy for Huck to turn Jim in, which is sort of the mm-hmm. point. Huck has this direct access in some ways to Jim's owner. Um, it feels so icky even to say that. I don't like just, it feels, ugh. But he does. He, at some point, I think even drafts a letter to Miss Watson being like, I'm with Jim, you know, I know where he is. And sort of, again, as after he goes through all of these mental gymnastics, he tears it up, um, which is sort of his, like, moral climax of, I think his quote is like, all right, fine, I'll go to hell. That's the biggest problem, I think, of the entire story. Yeah. Well, because it's it's not only him being arrested, but it's also a little bit about, like, if you buy, you know, depending on your religious beliefs, if you're buying into salvation as a concept, the idea that, like, you know, he... A, is running the risk of being arrested, but also, like, running the risk of not going to heaven, if that's a construct that you believe in. And so, as you said, his motives aren't necessarily, quote-unquote, pure if, like, the reason that he's, like, making some of these decisions is about the, like, long-term status of his soul. Yeah. Like I said in the beginning, he ends up making a lot of the right decisions, but for totally the wrong reasons and then kind of like doesn't even really reflect on it i the thing i struggle with too reading this is yes he makes this right decision for jim but if he saw another runaway slave in the same scenario there's no way he would have made any of these similar decisions or even like the next day i don't know what happens after this book or what the the next chapter of, of his sort of story is but assuming that he continues to go down this river or whatever next adventure he he gets into, it doesn't seem like he's learned enough to really make the right or better decision. It's all sort of self-serving throughout the the entire book. So that I definitely had issue with. Did you kind of buy into their relationship like over the course of the book? So Uh, listeners, we're not going to be able to talk about like all of the episodes because it, as I mentioned, it's a long book and there are these kind of like bigger picture things that we're talking about. But they're going down the river. 
Huck is trying to get away from his father because he doesn't want to have to be back under his abusive watch. Jim is, of course, trying to get to freedom. And so they have all of these different, like, levels of mischief. There's the Duke and the King, who are these, like, con men that they bring onto their raft. And that's actually, like, the thing that sticks out in my mind the most and makes me the most sure that I've read this book because I remember talking about the Duke and the King, who are not a Duke and a King. They're just, like these like creepy guys who are pretending to be royalty. So they, they have all of these different things that go on. If anything, I think all of these episodes sort of illustrate from Mark Twain's perspective that like white people are really not necessarily always like the most straightforward because I think what he's trying to say is that unfortunately, um, this is a time when, when people of color were often viewed as not to be trusted, not smart. And a lot of the white characters that we see throughout this book are actually unintelligent, ignorant, violent, and not to be trusted. And so that's sort of how I took in a lot of the ups and downs that Huck and Jim experience. Um, And they have their share of conflicts, but ultimately, like, they do keep, they kind of keep together. They fall apart, they come back together. Did you buy into their friendship? So I bought into their friendship a little bit. I mean, the whole book is very (laughs) unrealistic. It's like getting lost on the Mississippi and magically finding each other again. Yeah, I understand it's a story, but just they keep sort of finding their way back to each other in a very unrealistic way. So that part was a little bit tough for me. It's a little fairy tale-y that they keep magically finding each other It's a little fairy tale-y. And also, like, nothing else really in the book is that sort of whimsical or unbelievable, you know. And uh, you're right that Jim's character throughout is is very, very consistent. I mean, he has all these quirks. He has all these superstitions yeah. that he really believes in and that him and Huck have sort of these rituals around certain things that I think helps them definitely bond but you're right, basically every other white character they meet throughout going from town to town down this river, everyone is is basically terrible in different ways. Yeah. One of the things that I found over and over as I was researching is this dissatisfaction that almost everybody has at the ending of this book. So yeah. we've summarized what goes on from the time that they come back together um, until the end. And pretty much nobody likes the ending, as far as I can tell. To kind of fast forward without skipping too much. We discover by the end of the book a few things. We discover that Huck's dad has actually been dead for most of their journey. And we also discover that Miss Watson died shortly after Huck and Jim escaped and in her will freed Jim. So if you want to get right down to it, they really weren't running away from anything the whole time. And a lot of critics take issue with that because they feel like it's a cop-out for Mark Twain to be like, oh, it was just kind of this, like, fun journey. Like, you didn't actually need to run away from anything. So there's that issue. There's also the issue of what happens when Tom Sawyer re-enters the mix because when Huck gets to his last destination, he and Tom are reunited, and Tom steps in to try to free Jim and sort of save Jim in this last section of the book. And there's this whole shift in Huck's behavior and in his tone. And I found a lot of really interesting scholarship about this, actually. I I emailed you a link that I was like, you have to read this. And I'll share some of that shortly, but what was your, like, general thought about the ending? Did you also take issue with it? I would say not as much as a lot of the literary critics. I mean, I I actually enjoyed having 
Tom Sawyer come back into the picture because mm. uh, it was nice to have that like familiar dynamic and I think that they it's, it's really fun to, to read them together but then yeah at the end where it turns out that sort of Tom delayed breaking Jim free just because he wanted to have this sort of bigger and this really big adventure around setting him free with all these sort of bells and whistles right. of the escape plan. Tom reintroduces all of these like action adventure yeah. things instead of just getting him out. And then knowing that Tom knows the whole time that Jim should be free anyway is kind of like, I mean, I definitely have issue with it and I definitely have issue with Huck reverting to his like former self in it, but at the same time I was reading it, I was thinking like this isn't supposed to be a moral story. Like I'm not re- I'm reading this as a, an entertainment piece, not mm-hmm. as a okay, this is the way it should be done. And the one comparison that I made to sort of that ending point in my mind is, is I kept thinking of Ferris Bueller's Day Off mm-hmm. because he is just like this sort of lovable character that everybody enjoys watching his adventures but he's like it's a terrible person I know we I think we've talked about this before like it's a, a story about like lying and doing the wrong thing <laughs> my over. dad's not gonna like that you're saying uh, this <laughs> no, no. but I think it's similar like it's still a piece of entertainment that yeah. people like but like especially at the end when Tom and Huck are back together it made me think of that a lot like Yes, they are doing the wrong thing over and over. And this one obviously is much higher stakes in this book because it's uh, Jim's sort of life, life, on the, yeah. life on the line. But it's more from this is sort of just the way that these two people are. Yeah. And they're always going to be like this. I think even at the end, Tom gets shot and he has this bullet that he wears on like a necklace going forward. And I said, I, I don't think that the following week after this book ends, these two are going to be any different and it doesn't make the whole story a bad story or their adventures a terrible lesson it's just sort of is what it is and that's how it sort of ends well for what it's worth and i'm not saying this makes it right but there is a foreword or like an introduction that mark twain wrote that basically was like don't read this for morals so i wonder if he coming to the end of the book was anticipating any of this yeah and i guess maybe a lot of the, the critics today wanted to wrap it up in a way that is a bigger lesson you know there's definitely better ways that Twain could have ended the story but there's better ways that a lot of people could end a lot of stories and I don't I don't particularly look when I read a book like this for sort of some big explanation of of this is the, the this is the right way to have this problem solved and everybody is going on and living as happier people and better people because of it Yeah, I can see all sides. I mean, I I do feel like Huck experienced a certain level of growth throughout the story, and he reverted a lot in the ending. And so I think that was sort of a bummer. Um, And obviously, as you mentioned, we're dealing with really high stakes here with Jim, and so it's disappointing and upsetting um, to see the way Huck behaved. I also think it's just kind of like this stark reminder of how high the stakes could be at this time in history when um, slavery was such a problem and sort of like how easy it maybe would have been to play with somebody's life that these kids like these literal children are playing with this man's freedom in his life so I think that that's sort of like a bleak reminder in this book about like what that actually looked like um, but as I mentioned I found this article um, this morning that I thought was really interesting and sort of helped solidify some of my feelings about the ending it's from Scientific American and it's called is Huckleberry Finn's ending really lacking not if you're talking psychology I will of course include a link to it in the show notes for this 
this episode, but it basically talks about how from a scientist perspective, from a psychologist perspective, while the fact that Huck changes at the end of the book and behaves in this particular way might make it not so great from a literary perspective, if we're talking in terms of psychology, it's actually quite expected and predictable that this is what happened. Um, The author refers to peer pressure. He refers to the fact that Huck is a teenager and that he was nurtured in this particular environment. Again, not claiming that this makes any of it okay, but he talks about how people, including Huck, behave a certain way and in public and then a certain way in private um, and how that sort of plays out. I I just think it's a really interesting article. To wrap it up, uh, the author says, Huckleberry Finn's reality may not be what we want or what would make the book morally satisfying, but it is all too easy to understand in human terms. In those last chapters, Twain wasn't taking an easy way out or wrapping up loose ends any which way he could. He was showing us ourselves as we actually are as we change from private, the river, to the public, town, when all of a sudden others' eyes are on us, and that is not a pretty sight to behold. So I think that's just an interesting perspective and I'll link to that in the show notes. So on the whole, Matt, I can't ask you obviously if you liked it or didn't like it as compared to when you read it as a kid because you're telling me that you either skipped out on required reading or just never had a chance to read it. But kind of like stepping back and looking at it overall, how did it measure up to maybe the expectations or the impression that you had of it at the beginning? That's a tough one. I would say that it did not hold up for me, especially knowing that this is sort of highly regarded as a great American classic. I can see why people think that way. I can see sort of its historical importance and why a lot of literary historians enjoy this book for certain reasons. But for me personally, it definitely did not hold up. Yes, the story was a a big adventure and I understood the sort of satirical nature of some of it, but I still don't think it was, it's not my kind of adventure. I would have preferred something more interesting or this one is just not for me. I won't be offended if other people really, really like it or if other people really, really hate it. I just kind of thought it was fine. I thought it'd be interesting to get, I mean, it is an an important story. It would have been, I think, more interesting in the third person if we sort of got more of Jim's perspective because he's pretty sort of flat throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it probably would have been a much more important book if we had more of that but for what it is I think it was fine. I don't think it was terrible but I don't think it was one of the greatest books in our American history. Well I think that's a great way to sum it up and I think I agree with a lot of what you said. So that's a good place to leave the conversation about Huckleberry Finn. I'll be interested to see um, what listeners have to say over on social media. So please feel free to join in the conversation over there. Matt, other than The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, what have you been reading lately? So listeners, Matt is not quite as voracious of a reader as I am, and that's okay. But you've been reading pretty consistently lately, and uh, you've, yeah. there have been a couple of things, especially while we were traveling in Thailand. You read a lot on our trip. What I have did. you been well, reading and enjoying? I tend to sort of binge read. You do? And I'll go through a month or two where I read yeah. a ton, and then And then you're like, I need to take a month off. Where I, I, I take a month off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, you're right. In Thailand, I did read a bunch. One of the books I loved and actually got from the podcast was Nevermore. Okay. I think you did it for New Reads November. I did. And I flew through that I flew through the sequel to it and I think the third book in the trilogy is coming out 
sometime in the spring, spring I think. I think. Yeah. But that was so good. You read both of those, and those are long books. I think you read them in like four days. Yeah, there was just something like special about them in a cool, whimsical way that I thought they were very well done. I, I just really enjoyed them. Another book that I read in the past few years is one of my favorites is American Gods. I still have to read it. So good. It's my first time ever reading Neil Gaiman, and it was it was just so good. I recommend that book to everyone, and it is a little bit of fantasy, but it's not typically what something I would read, but I just, I don't know why, I, I just liked it so much. I know. That's been your go-to recommendation for a while. Yeah, it has been. Oh, the one book that uh, I think you and I both read that I, I enjoyed, that I think I read it last year, was Sourdough. It's so weird, but it's good. Yeah. Um, I, I think I read that right after we were going to like San Francisco yeah. for the first time, and it was just one of those books that... You read in the right moment. Yeah, it has a really cool sense of place. Yeah. And yeah, I think I maybe read it right before we went, and you read it right after, and yeah. sort of like the like startup-y culture of San Francisco. Matt also has recently been working on um, baking bread, and so um, yeah. sometimes we, we've been talking actually about that book in relation to our bread-making projects. Um, so those are great recommendations. I will include links to all of them in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to the Nevermore episode for those who haven't listened. It's a good one. And I would include links links to Matt's social media, but he chooses to live entirely off the grid. Um, He's not a social media guy. We have this uh, sort of inside joke that maybe he's keeping a secret blog somewhere that I don't know about. So if he chooses to reveal that blog to me between now and the date that this episode drops, I will include a link to it in the show notes. (laughs) But I don't see that happening anytime soon. If you want to to find out more about Matt and what he does, I guess follow me on on social media. He, He appears sometimes on the SSR Instagram. Maybe now that he's been a guest on the podcast, podcast he'll make more guest appearances yeah mostly with our dog mostly with our dog really it's in our fan account over there well thank you so much matt it was really fun to have you on the show yeah this was fun was Um, it was it scary i mean yeah your guests are all so smart and so well read and uh it was fun it was definitely fun and i felt uh very welcomed oh in your own home i'm so glad kitchen table (laughs) all right let's go like watch the office or something bye everybody Bye. bye thanks so much for listening to the ssr podcast check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information and be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes behind the scenes inside scoop and some good old-fashioned book talk find us at ssr pod on instagram and twitter and search ssr podcast on facebook to join the group to reach out directly you can send me an email at hello ssrpod at gmail.com if you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>